You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of biblical theology today by continuing to examine the nature of true saving faith. Last time, Dr. Spencer, you made the point that simply saying, I believe in Jesus Christ, is not enough to be saved. We must see our sinful condition and our need for a Savior, and we must believe in the one true Savior, Jesus Christ, as he is presented to us in the Bible. At the end, you held out that there is even more to be said. What did you have in mind? I had a number of things in mind, but the first one is that Christianity is not a self-help program nor is it just a bit of moral reformation. I fear that far too often nowadays that's all people think it is. I've heard that view as well. And in the churches that peddle this brand of false Christianity, Jesus is seen as nothing more than a good moral teacher, and his sacrifice on the cross, if it's believed at all, is simply seen as an example of personal sacrifice. So the first thing I want to make clear is that true Christianity has absolutely nothing to do with this kind of nonsense. The Jesus Christ who is presented in the Bible and the Jesus Christ who is the Savior of the world is truly God and truly man, and he gave his life as a sacrifice to pay for the sins of those who will place their trust in him. Christians are, of course, to live differently than unbelievers, but it isn't just a little bit of moral renovation. It is a deep-seated work of total transformation that continues throughout all of life. And, in fact, we don't primarily work for any kind of reward in this life, do we? You're right. As Christians, our ultimate hope is not for anything in this life. No, we are looking forward to what comes after this life. As Paul wrote in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, He wrote about his own upcoming death to his young protege, Timothy, and said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul was clearly looking forward to something wonderful when this life is over. Yes, he was, and that's why in Philippians 1, 21 and 23, he wrote, that to die is gain, and that to die is to be with Christ, which is better by far. The Apostle Peter also wrote about this great hope. In 2 Peter 3.13, we read that, quote, In keeping with God's promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And, of course, we have the glorious picture of this new heaven and new earth in Revelation 21, where we are told that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain and that God himself will be with us and be our God. That's right. What a glorious picture it paints of our eternal destiny. So my main point, again, is that a false Christianity that is focused on this life, as most modern churches are, is a horribly distorted imitation of the real thing. Therefore, our purpose is not to live better so that this life is better. Our purpose is to do the will of God for his glory and to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ himself, and to look forward to our ultimate home, which is in heaven with God. We should be able to join with the psalmist in Psalm 73, verses 24 and 25, when he wrote, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. 
Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you? So a little bit of moral reformation is not what we are talking about. Christ told his disciples in Matthew six nineteen and 20, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Our main focus is to be on living this life to prepare for what happens when we die. All right, what else did you have in mind with regard to the nature of true saving faith? The second thing I had in mind is a doctrine sometimes called the double imputation, which we briefly introduced near the end of session three. Now, according to my dictionary, to impute something to me is to say that I now possess it or that I am guilty of that something, whatever it might be. So please explain the double imputation to which you're referring. I'm referring to the fact that when we truly repent and trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, our sins are imputed to him and his righteousness is imputed to us. And this is called the double transaction. It's, it's like a financial transaction. My sins are placed in Jesus' account and his perfect righteousness is placed in mine. That's a very unequal transaction, to say the least. Well, it certainly is. It's the most amazing display of God's grace and love imaginable. Jesus Christ willingly takes all of my sins, past and future. He takes the whole ugly, smelly lot upon himself and bears the penalty that I deserve to pay, the wrath of God and death itself. And in addition, he then gives me his perfect righteousness. And of course, he had to become man in order to die, since God cannot die. But he also had to live a perfect, sinless life in obedience to the will of God the Father. Absolutely. He had to live a perfect life as a man in order to have this perfect righteousness to give. In addition, since it was man who sinned against God, a man had to atone for that sin. But no mere mortal is able to atone for his own sin, let alone the sin of someone else. As it says in Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9, No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him, The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. That verse puts the lie to the commonly held belief that in the day of judgment, God will put my good deeds and bad deeds on a balance and see which is greater. It certainly does. And as I briefly mentioned near the end of session two, we have no good deeds anyway. Everything we do is tainted by sin. God is perfect and he demands perfection, which means that not only must my external actions be perfect, but so must my motives and desires be perfect. And nothing I ever do in this life satisfies that standard. But as you said, Jesus Christ did satisfy that standard. Yes, he did. And he's the only one who ever has. He himself said in John eight twenty nine that he always did what pleased the Father. But his perfect obedience is not the only reason we need Jesus as our Savior. We also need the infinite value of his atoning sacrifice. Why is that? Because, as Jonathan Edwards correctly argued in his famous sermon, The Justice of God and the Damnation of Sinners, the heinousness of our sins is proportional to the dignity of the one against whom we sin. We see this principle at work in the laws of our country. For example, it's a more serious crime if you murder the president than it is if you murder me. And so Edwards argues, since God is infinite in his greatness, majesty, and glory, he is infinitely honorable, and sin against him deserves infinite punishment. And since sin is the transgression of God's law, all sin is first and foremost against God. And, of course, no mere man can pay an infinite price, except by being punished infinitely long. 
hence the fact that hell is eternal. Mm -hmm. But because Jesus Christ is infinite God incarnate, his sacrifice has infinite worth. He fully paid the infinite penalty for sin by bearing the wrath of God for a finite period of time. Those horrible hours on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In addition, the Father has agreed to accept his sacrifice on behalf of those who will place their trust in him. Very well, that covers the first half of the double transaction. It explains why we need Christ's atoning sacrifice, but we still need to explain the second half of the transaction. In other words, why we need his perfect righteousness. We need his perfect righteousness because we're told in Matthew 5.48 to be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We need nothing less than a perfect righteousness to come into God's holy presence. So in the double transaction, Jesus takes away the guilt of my sins by his atoning sacrifice, and he grants to me his perfect righteousness. That is an amazing thought. And this is not a new idea in the New Testament. We also see this transaction spoken of in the Old Testament, don't we? We certainly do. In, in Zechariah chapter 3, we see a wonderful portrayal of this transaction using the example of Joshua, who was the high priest at the time the Jews were rebuilding the temple after the Babylonian captivity. And he is used not just as an example, but also as the representative for the people. In verses 1 through 5, the prophet tells us of a vision he was given by an angel. And he says, quote, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him, while the angel of the Lord stood by. That is a beautiful picture of God's grace. It certainly is. The, the, the scene, of course, is a courtroom in heaven, and Satan is the prosecuting attorney. The idea here is that if the high priest Joshua is a sinner, represented by his filthy clothes, what hope is there for the people? How can a sinful high priest offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people? He himself needs a sacrifice. And notice that no one denies that Joshua is sinful. Even though Satan is the father of lies, he, he doesn't have to lie to accuse us. He can tell the truth. But the angel of the Lord, who many would say is Jesus Christ himself, tells them to take off Joshua's filthy clothes and to put clean, rich garments on him instead. This represents salvation. It is the gospel. We need to have the perfect righteousness of Christ to be able to come into heaven. And we are granted that perfect righteousness in the double transaction. I remember in session three, you noted that Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. We read, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yeah, I quoted that verse because it's the very best one I know of for supporting this doctrine. And the wording in that verse is important. It says, in him we become the righteousness of God. Throughout the New Testament, it speaks of Christians as being in Christ. In fact, that construction is used 89 times in the, in the Bible we're using. And of course, this expression is sort of a shorthand way of speaking about our union with Christ. Mm -hmm. And our union with Christ is what the theologian John Murray has called the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. 
All that can be said of a Christian is true only because we are united to Christ by faith. I'm sure we'll have to spend more time in a later session or two talking about union with Christ, but let's get back to the topic at hand and see how this applies to our preliminary discussion of the nature of true saving faith. All right. Well, union with Christ is fundamental to our discussion. You're certainly correct that we'll come back at a later date and spend more time on the topic, but now I want to point out three things. First, it is in union with Christ that he takes our sins upon himself and pays the penalty we owe. Second, it is in union with Christ that we receive his perfect righteousness, which we need to enter heaven. And third, it is in union with Christ that we live in this life. Okay, we've covered those first two points in terms of the double transaction. How is the third one important in a basic discussion on the nature of true saving faith? Oh, it's critically important because it speaks to how a Christian should live. We are united to Christ by faith, and so it is proper to say that we are saved by faith alone. But that union involves a radical change in our being, which occurs when we're born again, and which always results in a life of obedience. We discussed this topic at some length in section 3, but it's critically important to bring it up again in the context of true saving faith, because most modern churches are antinomian, at least to some degree. And that word antinomian means against the law. Right, and I encourage our listeners to go back and listen to session 3 if they don't remember it or haven't heard it, but the idea that a Christian is not bound by God's law is not biblical. The law of God is our guide to living a life of grateful obedience to God for saving us. Our law-keeping is not the basis of our salvation, but it is the evidence that we have, in fact, been saved. I won't go back over the same scriptures I adduced in session 3, but I have time to just give one more today that, that makes the same point. In Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, we read about Jesus, and we're told that although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered— And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Notice the limiting clause in this statement. He became the source of eternal salvation not for everyone, and not for those who simply claim to believe in him, but for all who obey him. This clearly is an important topic, and I look forward to continuing our discussion next time, but we're out of time for today. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say? Brought to you by Grace and Glory Media, and I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue speaking on the nature of true saving faith, and we hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary on the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.